In 2014, two girls decided to go visit Panama, but unfortunately, they never returned to their home country. Some strange things happened, weird pictures were found, some personal material and bones. Today's case will talk about the disappearance of Dutch women Chris Kremers and Lisanne Froon. Chris Kremers was born on August 9, 1992, the middle child with three brothers. At the time of the trip, she was 21 years old. She had just completed her studies in social and cultural education with a focus on art. She was dating Stefan, who was extroverted, talkative, proactive and very intelligent. Lisanne Froon was born on September 25, 1991 and had one brother. At the time, she was 22 and had just graduated the previous year in applied science with a focus on psychology. She was very tall and played volleyball, but her profile was almost the opposite of her friend. While Chris was more talkative and forward, Lisanne was more introverted. She liked to stay at home, didn't have many friends, was shy and was the type of person who planned everything in advance. Both were born in Amersfoort, Netherlands and met at their place of work a cafe restaurant. They had a friendship of four years and were very close. They were in that young adult phase of having finished college, working outside their area and not knowing for sure what the future would hold. In one conversation, Chris had an idea, to go with Lisanne to Panama in Central America. As the days went by, they began to collect the necessary funds for the trip. They found an agency in the Netherlands which offered a two-week Spanish course and a volunteer job teaching English at a children's school in exchange for accommodation. They liked the idea so much that they even raised money from friends and family to buy toys for the kids. They planned for everything. Nothing could go wrong. On March 15th, 2014, they embarked on their journey. Despite their long friendship, the girls' parents didn't know each other and met for the first time at the airport. Everyone was excited. The girls brought diaries to record every day of their trip. The initial destination was Bocas del Toro, Panama. On this island, they would spend two weeks studying Spanish in a school hostel. They had a little trouble with the language, as they literally didn't know anything. They made friends with the people in the hostel, mainly two Dutch people. They drank at night with them, had breakfast, walked, and the girls wrote everything in their diaries. They even confessed that both had stomach problems, probably due to the culture shock of the food. They stayed almost two weeks in Boca del Toro. On the 29th of March, they set off to their next destination where they would teach English, stay with a host family, and at the same time get to know the local culture. Their new school was Spanish by the river, which was connected to the school where they studied Spanish in the first two weeks in Bocas del Toro. They arrived at the school where they found Miriam, the person in charge of the host family house where they would stay. On the first day, they just wanted to rest, but they were very happy. Miriam was very friendly and responsive. They settled into their private room, which had a door to the street. To access the room, they did not have to go through the main entrance. Their host family had received exchange students for six years, so privacy arrangements had been adapted to accommodate guests. 
Miriam said that the girls were very respectful and calm. The first night she and Lisanne talked in the living room, despite the language barrier, and Chris read a book in the bedroom. At this point in the trip, Chris reported that everything was going very well, but Lisanne noted in her diary that she was a bit discouraged. Why did I want to take this trip to Panama? I have tears in my eyes now running down my cheeks while I write this. The mountains are beautiful, and the host family is very friendly. I'm with Chris, who is a familiar person to me, but I want to go home. I haven't had a problem these past two weeks, but now suddenly I'm completely down. I was naive to think that I could handle all of this. I felt like I had to do this to finally be happy with myself, but so far I feel like I failed. Miriam reported that because of the heat, both were very red, feet swollen, and added that Lisanne had a sore throat and had trouble breathing. She already had a leg injury from playing volleyball, so both of them weren't 100%. Lisanne in particular was not well, both physically and psychologically. These reports are from the 29th, a Saturday, the day they arrived. On Sunday, Lisanne already reported that she was feeling better and that she would try to be stronger and continue with her travel plans. On March 30th, Sunday, they woke, had breakfast, walked around the city, had lunch at a local restaurant, took pictures, returned home before dark, and had dinner with the host family. Monday, March 31st, would be their first day working as volunteers at the local children's school. This school was about three streets away from the house. Their volunteer work would continue for the remaining four weeks of the trip. However, when they arrived at school, they found out that their names were not in the system. The girls explained that the Netherlands agency organised everything and sent an email saying everything was fine, but for some reason, it was not. The school could not schedule them in to start teaching English the following Monday because other people would be there. The girls had organised everything so as not to cause any problems and ended up facing this. Lisanne even sent a message to her parents saying it was frustrating and Chris wrote in her diary that they spent the afternoon working it out, trying to see if there was another school where they could undertake volunteer work. The girls made video calls to their parents every day and Chris called her boyfriend too. Finally, they had help to find a new place, but volunteer work always starts on Mondays, so they knew that that week was lost. To occupy their free time, they researched tours to do in the region and found a trail that looked interesting. This was the El Pianista Trail, where they would climb to the top of a volcano and have a 360-degree view of the city. This trail takes about two hours to reach the top and the same time to return. The school was also looking for other tours for that week, as they would do the El Pianista Trail the next day. From now on, a lot of information begins, chopped up and sometimes missing, but which will be recounted here in chronological order as far as possible. On April 1st, Miriam woke up, made breakfast for them and went to work. The girls woke up, had breakfast and left with backpacks and light clothes. A witness working at the school says he saw them leaving around 1pm. The beginning of the trail was about 9 kilometers from where they were, so they took a taxi. The taxi driver said he picked them up near the school around 1.30pm and arrived at the entrance to the trail at about 1.45pm. 
This trail is one of the most famous attractions in the region. It is about eight kilometers long and considered moderate level, since it is a climb that, depending on the weather, can be covered by clouds, rain, and make the journey more difficult, with mud and becoming slippery. The top of the volcano is about 2,000 meters high. The trail is well marked, safe, it is not easy to get lost, and there are no dangerous points that could make someone fall and break a limb, for example. There are reports of people who routinely walk the route without a guide. The weather conditions on this day were excellent, but there are hidden waterfalls on the trails and, oh yes, to have access to them, it is very important to have a guide, because it is necessary to enter the forest to reach these places. Another interesting thing is that the main trail passes through occupied houses. Walkers practically traverse their back gardens. As they arrived at 1.45pm, they must have started the trail at 2pm, they would reach the top around 4pm. They would enjoy the view for a while, let's say half an hour, and return, arriving back at 6.30pm. However, the girls were sighted coming back along the trail at 3.30pm, tired and sweaty. At the trail entrance, there's an Italian restaurant, and the owner commented that he even talked to them explaining where they could take a bus back to their accommodation. A guy from a hostel nearby said he had spoken to them and that they were trying to get back to town. Employees of the Italian restaurant said they saw them start to walk the trail at 3pm, so there were many witnesses putting them on the trail in the afternoon, but some said they were going, others said they were coming. That night, they did not return home. Miriam was aware, but she wasn't so worried because she thought, they're exchange students, they've just arrived, they're getting to know the region, sometimes they won't spend the night there, they met someone. She wasn't their mother. The girls are of legal age. There wasn't much to do. She went to sleep believing that everything was fine. The next day, on April 2nd, she left after breakfast to go to work. The girls had another tour scheduled. The Spanish school called a local guide and booked this tour for 8am. It was already marked. This local guide, who we will call him Guide F, is quite well known, 58 years old at the time, and had been working as a guide for 14 years. At 8.30am, the girls had not shown up. The guide got out of the car and went to the language school to speak with Eileen, the receptionist. He asked her if the girls had cancelled the scheduled tour, but she had no information about it. However, Eileen suggested that maybe they were late, and as she knew where the girls were staying, that was just behind the school, so he could go there. Eileen brought Guide F to the place, both knocked on the access door, but no one answered. Remember, access to the girls' room was not through the host family's house. Eileen had the owner's number. She called her, explained the situation, and Miriam told her where there was a spare key, and she authorised both to get enter. They took the spare key, but when they opened the door, they weren't there. Guide F realised something was strange and decided to call the police. They arrived at the place, took some notes and left. At 5pm the girls still hadn't shown up, so Eileen decided to look for girls' phone number. In the record she found a contact number left by Lisanne, but when she called she said, Hello Lisanne? And the person on the other phone said, 
Lisan is in Panama. Who is it? Eileen said, Oh, sorry, and hung up the phone. It was Dini, Lisan's mother, who had answered the call. She was worried because her daughter hadn't sent a message for two days. This call was received from a number from another country, and in Holland it was almost midnight. She immediately decided to call back. When she called, Eileen picked up and explained everything. Lisanne's parents called Chris's parents to explain about this, and then in parallel, Guide F and Eileen went to the local state police to report the disappearance. The following day, April 3rd, Guide F also went to the headquarters of Sinaproc, National Civil Protection System of Panama, to report the disappearance of the girls, then went to another headquarters in the municipality. The Panamanian police began to investigate and speak with possible witnesses to track the last steps of the girls. They saw searches on the trail on the school computer, found the taxi driver who picked up the girls near the school, spoke to the restaurant staff, employees. Finally, they believed that the girls were lost and began the search in the woods. Lisanne's brother, an uncle and a family friend went to Panama because they wanted to follow the search closely. The parents didn't go because they were too scared of flying, but they were fine, knowing that trusted people were going there to support them. Chris's parents, on the other hand, thought they wouldn't need to go immediately since the two police officers were on the move. But as the days went by with no news, they also decided to go to Panama. Almost a week later, when Chris's parents arrived, they hiked El Pianista. They clearly say that the trail is not so difficult, that they don't imagine Chris leaving the main path, even though they did the whole route with guides. And who was one of those guides? Our guide F. The parents said they were very satisfied with the support provided by the local police and the support of the local community in the indigenous regions who were committed to helping with the searches. Even with a large number of people composing the search teams, they also used helicopters to fly over the search area. The families hired a private detective and requested that dogs be brought from Holland to help, which was authorised by the Dutch government. Holland personnel were in Panama with a team of 18 people and 12 dogs. The Panama team was virtually uncountable. The families offered a $30,000 reward to anyone who brought in important information, but weeks went by and unfortunately no one found anything. Guide F gave an interview towards the end of May, saying that he felt that by that time, after all the searching had been done, if they were lost on the trail, injured in any way or even the worst had happened, they should have found them by now. So he didn't believe that Chris and Lisanne were lost near the area because if that was the case, at least they would find traces. On the 3rd of June, two months later, the Dutch police ended their search in Panama and said that they could not assert anything, but that as they were a group specialised in looking for people, dead or alive, and they had searched the entire area and found nothing, the probability of the girls not being in that region was very high. Families still had no answers, and no one had any idea what had happened. On June 14th, almost two weeks after the end of the searches, a clue appeared that put the investigation in motion again, in addition to making the case much more mysterious. That day, the police received a call from a local woman 
saying that she found Lisanne's backpack on the edge of a river near the community where they lived. She also said that she was sure that the backpack was not there the day before. At first, people thought that the river had brought the backpack to that region, but the condition of the backpack showed something else. It was a simple backpack, not sophisticated. It wasn't the waterproof type, and thinking about a backpack that has been practically ten weeks in the forest under rain and sun or maybe carried by the river, it should at least be damp. But no, it was dry, clean, intact, and inside there was some of the girls' belongings. As if this were not already strange, the place where the backpack was found was 17 km away from Boquette and 8 km away from the starting point of the El Pianista Trail. This region is a very difficult place to reach. It's at least 14 hours of walking for an experienced hiker or even days for those who don't know the region. They found two cell phones, a digital camera, Lisanne's passport, two bras, two glasses and $83. The cell phones and camera were working, which also shows that they had not gotten wet or damaged. Items were neatly placed in the backpack, bras were tucked in, everything organised. But it went through the hands of many people, including the police, who found 31 different fingerprints. 13 prints on the backpack, 12 on the cell phones and camera, and 6 on the bras. But believe me, while they found numerous fingerprints, none were identified. Because of this, they organised new search parties to go to the region. And then, on the 19th, our guide F, along with natives from the region, found along the Culebra River a pair of denim shorts, two different shoes and remains of bones. The shorts that were found belonged to Chris and were a 14-hour walk from where the backpack was. People say that the shorts were found folded on a rock. Others said that they were floating in the water. What happened was that they found the evidence, and because of the unpreparedness of those looking for it, they kept picking it up and not gathering evidence correctly. Because of this, we have a lot of conflicting information about it. The bones were found behind a tree near Alto Romero, which was where the backpack and shoes were. They also found a boot, and inside that boot there was a foot. That's right, folks, one foot, still inside the sock. Expert analysis confirmed that the cut on the foot was clean, without blood, without the mark of a cutting tool, nor an animal bite. It indicated that the limb was detached from the body as if it were released. DNA analysis further identified that the bones, a rib and a pelvic bone, were Chris's, and the foot was Lisanne's. On the 20th of June, the parents of the girls made a public note saying that they now had strong reason to believe that their daughters were no longer alive. On the 29th of August, they found some more bones, one from the femur and one from the tibia, and in addition some small pieces of skin, as if they were piled up in a small ball. Everything belonged to Lisanne. The strange thing was that in the expertise, they said that everything was in the initial stage of decomposition. The pathologist thought that this piece of evidence that was like her DNA could have been manipulated by a third party because it was half intact. The pathologist clearly stated that the bones were in different stages of decomposition. 
While Lisanne's bones were in an early stage of decomposition, Chris's bones were in an advanced stage. They found evidence that Chris's bones underwent some chemical process, but did not identify whether it was due to the soil, nature, or if there was any human involvement. The police analysed the possibility that this dismemberment had been done through the use of cal, calcium oxide. They explained that the effect of lime is corrosive and that chemical experiments have already been done by covering a body with calcium oxide and that really makes the extremities detach. So perhaps that explains why Lausanne's left foot cut does not contain any brand of cutting equipment. Phosphate was also found in Chris's rib, but the area where the bone was found is not volcanic soil, so this would indicate the use of fertilisers or chemicals on them. The families were frustrated with the situation as they couldn't come to terms with the idea of burying parts of their daughters. And then, to make the case even more bizarre, the cell phone analysis report came out with a record of calls during the days that they were missing, in addition to the printout of the photos that were in the camera, containing several photos taken after the date of the disappearance. Let's first talk about calls from cell phones. On April 1st at 4.39pm, Chris's cell phone makes an attempt to call the emergency. Twelve minutes later, at 4.51pm, Lizanne's cell phone also makes an attempted emergency call. Both attempts were to number 112, which is the emergency number in the Netherlands. In Panama, the emergency number is 911. After that, the cell phones were turned off and stayed like that for 14 hours. On April 2nd, at 6.58am, Lisanne's cell phone tries to call 112 and it is disconnected 36 seconds later. At 8.14am, Chris's cell phone tries to call 112. At 10.53am, Lisanne's cell phone tries to call 112 and 911. And at 1.56pm, Lisanne's cell phone tries 112. After that, the cell phones were turned off again. On the 3rd, at 9.33am, Chris's cell phone keeps calling 911. Lisanne's cell phone on this day is just turned on and off several times, probably to see if they had a signal. On the 4th, none of the two cell phones registered any calls. Chris's cell phone was turned on a few times, but Lisanne's was off all day. On the 5th, at 5am, Lisanne's cell phone is turned on and immediately turned off due to lack of battery. Thereafter, it has no further records. As for Chris, it still has a battery, and it turns on and off again, but without any calls to the emergency. But at 1.37pm, the cell phone was turned on, and an access password was entered incorrectly. Since then, several other incorrect attempts have taken place. The expert reported that from the 5th to the 11th, when the last incorrect access attempt was recorded at 10.51am, 77 access attempts were made. Now I will tell you the information regarding the digital camera and the found photos. The first inconsistency is that many witnesses said that they saw the girls in the afternoon in the trailhead area, but from the photos, they were actually on the trail going up the path and reaching the top of the mountain. But in the photos, they start at 11am 
and arrive at the top at 1pm. They confirmed the times by taking the camera recording, which was Dutch time, and did the calculations across time zones, contrary to virtually every witness. In the photos, it is possible to see that the day was good for the trail. Happily, one taking a photo of the other and taking selfies at the top and continuing the trail after the mountain. People believe that they went looking for these hidden waterfalls, and because of that, perhaps they got lost. There are also people who believe that they took this new path, thinking they were coming back, and ended up getting lost. What is known is that they continued the trail until they reached a creek that was not part of the main path. Lisanne's face is even a little uncomfortable or scared, unsure of something. All these photos were recorded on April 1st and there is no other record until April 7th. On the 8th, between 1 and 4 a.m., more than 90 photos were taken from the camera, practically every two minutes. They showed the woods, branches, paper, rock, dirt. One specific photo shows Chris's hair. The photos don't make any sense. People think they were trying to memorise the path or maybe lighten up to see something using the flash, but only eight days later of the disappearance. Another thing discovered was that the photos they were taking on the trip until April 1st are all in sequence, and the last one is registered with the number 508. Then came the sequence of photos in the dark from the 8th, but it starts with 510. There is a photo, the 509, that was deleted, but here it is worth a very important observation. Devices that record audio and image are always sequential. If you take a photo, in this case 509, and you don't like it and decide to delete it, the next photo is again 509. If you take several photos and then decide to delete a previous one other than the last one, that space is left without a photo. What I mean is, the system works in sequence recognising the last registered photo. So with that, we know that the photo, or perhaps the video, which was recorded between April 1st and 8th, was deleted after the early morning photos. Another important thing is, the expert reported that when these records are deleted directly by the cell phone camera, data recovery software can recover the files. They did everything to recover image 509, but they couldn't, deducing that this photo or video was erased using a computer. The official account from Holland was that the girls got lost on the trail, got hurt and suffered a fatal accident. Supported by the report from Panama where they said that the women reached a very dangerous bridge to cross, which in this case was just ropes, their fall was fatal and that there was no third party involved. Chris's family did not accept this thesis, mainly because they found body parts in different places. They wanted the investigation to continue because they were sure there was at least one other person involved. This was a criminal case, not an accident. Lisanne's family accepted the published version, perhaps because they couldn't bear to further contemplate something that was hurting the family so badly. Well, this case leaves many doubts, many questions. When the answers are not clear, the questions keep hitting our minds. A photo that disappeared. Who took the photos? Where were they? Who made incorrect access attempts on the mobile phone? How was the backpack dry? 
why a photo of hair at dawn? Because of these and several other unanswered questions, several theories have been made. The first is that when they arrived at the top, it was still early, so they wanted to look for these hidden waterfalls and ended up getting lost, and that their death was due to lack of food, water, resulting in weakness and death. But this theory leaves in the air the question, where are the bodies? The second is that they would seriously injure themselves by breaking a limb like falling from a great height, and that could have been fatal which is the version on which the Panamanian government relies. Another theory is that the girls were attacked by a criminal who tried to dispose of the bodies by throwing chemicals like lime or fertilizer on them to speed up their decomposition. This explains the facts with regard to Chris's body, but it doesn't explain why none of this was found on Lisanne's. Another theory is that they were kidnapped. There are sub-theories that include cannibal tribes and human trafficking specifically related to the sale of organs. What was found does not suggest sexual trafficking. Some people even said that the two Dutch friends they made on the first part of the trip were involved. But the police investigated, and it was proven that they had no part in it. They spent the entire trip in Bocas del Toro and returned to Holland days later. Another theory says that Eileen the girl who worked at the school's reception, knew something. When the disappearance happened, she had been in Bocate for just a week. Sometime after the fact, she requested a transfer to the same school network in another city, and shortly after, she returned to Germany to live with her parents. What they say is that she would not be involved. But in this process of testifying, being interrogated... She may have heard something she shouldn't have, or maybe she was threatened, and the best way out for her was to get out of there. And finally, a theory that extends into several other areas states that they simply got lost and in the process of trying to get back were attacked for robbery or physical abuse by local people, gangs, which again, we will have the Gaidef indirectly involved in this. Why are we never saying his name? because he was always considered a person who was in front of helping. Very helpful. He waited for the girls for the tour. He was the one who knocked on the room. He was the one who reported the disappearance to the local police. He was the one in the search parties, besides having followed the trail with Chris's parents. So for all this time, he was in the position of a witness. He was never named, at least publicly, as a suspect. The woman who found the backpack... One of the residents of the difficult-to-reach area lives in a place far from everything and guess who owns a property in that area called Alto Romero? Our guide, F. He's the one who joins the group of natives from that region and who ends up finding almost everything, with several of these items in places of difficult visibility, such as behind rocks, under trees outside the main area, etc. But despite everything... He is a person well-respected by everyone in that region, good-natured, everyone knows him. His reviews on TripAdvisor are excellent. But in July 2019, a negative evaluation appeared from a girl saying that she only now had the courage to talk about something that happened when she was on a guided tour with him. She said he really is a good guide, but not a good one when you're a woman and you're alone with him. 
She felt harassed. She said that he was touching her a lot because he is really charming, but that when she cut him off, he said he could cut off her legs. Apparently, it's a profile created just for this qualification, so it's not known how credible this comment deserves to be. Interviews that Guide F gave are contradictory, as in one where he says he saw the girls the day before they disappeared. At school, he said hello out of politeness. But sometime later, he said he never saw them, that he was in this search position with the sole intention of helping the parents, and vented saying that in wanting to help, he ended up harming himself because he was attacked, considered by public opinion as responsible. He also says that his marriage was shaken, he separated, and that as a professional too, he was affected, talked about depression and said he didn't want any more involvement with the case that what he could not have done more to help and that he only ended up harming himself. He gave several interviews and when the discovery of the bones became public, the interview he gave ended with, now everyone knows that they are no longer alive, there is nothing else to do, better move on. If we stop to think that he was involved in the case, even if to help, from the first moment of the disappearance until the end of all investigations, and considering that he might have information, maybe no more than he said, and might have tried cover for someone including his son, which we'll get to in a moment. In addition to Guide F, many people speculate the involvement of another guide, Guide P. We will not mention the name for the same reason, to preserve the image since nothing proves the theories. He was never charged by the authorities either, but public opinion is very strong. Guide P was in the search and he said he saw the girls when they were going up, but days later he commented that he didn't know if they were real, claiming that tourists are practically all the same, especially Europeans, too white, blonde, etc. But the girls had remarkable characteristics, especially together. Chris had red hair, and Lisanne was very tall. Also, it seems that this guide P was the driver of the transfer that took the girls from Bocas del Toro to Boquette, which makes it all the more awkward for him to distance himself from his own claim that he had never seen the girls. If he was the driver who took them on this trip that lasted almost six hours, he could easily recognize them. In addition, he also posted on his social network photos from the top of the mountain with the same weather conditions as the girls' photos a few days after the disappearance, but these photos were later deleted. That was enough to suggest that he was at the top with them. Another thing they say is that the trademark of this guide is taking pictures, doing a thumbs up, and in the pictures of the girls, they don't do that at any time, except in the pictures where they are at the top of the mountain. And then they say that maybe he encouraged the girls to look for the waterfalls with him and that they ended up being coerced towards what happened. The most recent theory is that of local gang involvement. Guide F has children, and his eldest is known around town and much talked about joining a gang. Apparently, he frequented Bocas del Toro and was seen somewhere a bit drunk the day before the disappearance talking about the girls. People also say that he likes foreigners a lot, and that's why he may be involved in some way. But remember, there is no evidence, they are theories of public opinion, and that is why their identity is not revealed here. But there we go. The girls disappeared on April 1st. On the 4th, three days later, the body of a young man called Osman Valenzuelo 
who lived in Baixo Boquete, was found in a river, drowned. And then when the police went to investigate to know if it was an accident or homicide, through his cell phone they found a photo of him with a friend and two girls. The photo is of poor quality, but many people are sure that the girls are Chris and Lisanne. They say that the gang probably found him and the girls without that other boy in the photo, and they did harm to them in addition to killing him. On March 3rd, 2015, almost a year later, another person was found dead, drowned, and it was none other than the taxi driver who took the girls to the El Pianista Trail, Leonardo Arturo Gonzalez. What is most strange is how this death happened. He took tourists that day to swim, and he was waiting for the people to finish the bath. When they came back, they found him drowned in the shallow river. Many people say that the taxi driver may have passed on information that he had taken the girls to that trail and that he knew more than he told the police. This was the second suspicious death of someone who was directly or indirectly involved in the case, but it could just be coincidence. Except that on March 25th of the same year, Jose Manuel, 21 years old, who worked with Osman, who died a few days after the disappearance, the guy in the photo on his cell phone, died at 4am shortly after being hit by a vehicle who fled the scene and was never identified. And guys, Jose Manuel is the guy who appears next to Osman in the photo with the two girls. This was the third suspicious death. Then, with his death, the son of Guide F posted on the social network that they were soul brothers. That is, all these people were somehow connected and it is said that they were part of gangs. Even though there were three deaths, many felt that they had no connection with the disappearance of the girls, until we reached the fourth suspicious death. On April 4th of the same year, exactly one year after the first death, 30 days after the second death and nine days after the third, Another friend of Guide F's son was found drowned in a local river, with evidence suggesting that it was not an accidental death, also under suspicious conditions. There are many theories that people create to answer questions that remain unexplained. There is a theory that they got lost and bumped into people, but not serial killers or anything like that, but people with a mind to do evil who took advantage of the time and place. That might explain the 911 calls in the early days, adding that maybe Chris was caught first and Lisanne being more athletic might have managed to get away and that would be a third person trying to access the cell phone. As for the early morning photos, they make no sense in any theory. The backpack only appeared later because someone was interested in the $30,000 and this is very clear when in a recent documentary, the woman who found the backpack and her husband said that they did not trust the people in charge of the case because they handed over the backpack and never received the reward. Which leaves many questioning that perhaps whoever was in possession of these materials tried to combine the useful with the pleasant, sending word that the girls really disappeared, apparently dead, and in exchange they would still receive money. There are also reports that in this region, not only on the trail, but in the region as a whole, there are more than 20 disappearances, and unfortunately the police do not investigate them in depth. 
Families now try to accept that it was an accident to find comfort in the matter, but officially they say they accept it. Only behind the cameras, they don't believe it. And there's something very strange about that. Because when the parents received the bones of their daughters, they made an agreement with Panama. Because in an interview, this is clear when in one of the questions, Chris's dad's answer was that he couldn't talk about it because he wasn't authorised. He had signed an agreement, and if he talked about it, he would be breaking that agreement. So, handing over what was found of the girls under an agreement is very strange. We can't imagine what the girls actually went through. We hope they are remembered for their joys and dreams. May the joy of Chris Kremers and Lisanne Froon never be forgotten in our memories. <laughs> 